0: Oh, man, it is so great to be with you guys. This is really fun to be able to come to Livingstone and to worship with you guys. And just, it's, it's really a blessing. You know, I still remember uh, that nine-year-old feeling. Uh, the nine-year-old feeling of looking at a different ceiling. It was being at the top bunk at church. Uh, at a church camp for a week, and I remember the first night, you're on the top bunk, and you're looking up, and it's that feeling of not being at home, being a little uh, scared, trepidatious, you're wondering, how is this going to go? (laughs) How is it going to be at this camp for a week, away from my parents, for like the first time for an extended period of time? Am I going to have a good time? Am I going to make any friends? Staring at a different ceiling and going, I don't know if I can go to bed. I do wonder that feeling of staring at a different ceiling uh, that you might have had some of those moments too. You might not be literally staring at a different ceiling, but it might be... uh, Did I do the right thing by being here? How do I know if going to this school or taking this job was the right decision? Am I going to be able to keep going in this change of place? Again, feelings of trepidation, excitement, fear, fragility. Am I going to be okay in this new place? You see, this idea of staring at a different ceiling isn't too far from the feelings that these people have in this letter that we're going to read. What they are experiencing. See, they had joined this small group of Jesus' followers. And many of them are asking, in the midst of suffering and persecution, are we doing the right thing? What assurance is there that this thing is going to keep on going? What will motivate us when this gets really hard? These are the questions that the Thessalonians are asking. Maybe it's questions that you ask about maybe even being a part of a church plant, being a new phase of life, maybe going to a new phase of life. Is it going to be okay? Let's look together, shall we? 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1. Is there one there? Hopefully you can turn on your phones, as everyone knows nowadays. It's in your Bible. What page? 986. 986, just like mine. 986 is what page you're at in the Pew Bibles. Let's pay attention as we look at God's Word. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy... to come. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, prepare us for your word. I pray that it would transform us and change us. And maybe we would look in courage of where you might have us, even if we have trepidation and fear, that you work. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I'll be honest, I've been preaching through First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. We've been doing it as a church at Emmaus Road. And it's been great at Emmaus Road. We've really enjoyed it. But when I've been preaching this letter and this book, um, I've really been thinking about you guys. When I read this letter, I think about Livingstone. I think about what you guys are up against. I think about church planting I think about the hard work that it is. And my hope is that this letter would be an encouragement to you. That's why I chose the passage for you guys this afternoon. That it might be an encouragement to you as you look at this young church to look at your own church at Livingstone. See, this is a young church in a vibrant northern Greek town. Probably the size of Oshkosh is Thessalonica. And Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they have taken a journey the furthest west they've ever been because of a dream of a Macedonian man, which is the region that Thessalonica is in, gave Paul. And he came with his friends and they preached the gospel in the heart of the Roman Empire. They preached at synagogues, and some Jews, and great many Greeks, as Acts points out. And prominent women joined this church. Well, it didn't take long. Some say it might have just been three weeks of Paul preaching until people got upset. A riot broke out. And this riot caused Paul and his companions have to leave to go south to Berea. And then the rioters followed them to that town south of there and kicked them out of there too. So they had to go all the way down to southern Greece in Athens. And that is where Paul writes from in Athens, or some say maybe Corinth, back to the church In Thessalonica. And here's the thing. Paul didn't say, okay, fine. It didn't work there. On to the next thing. We did our hours. I did my work. You know, this is what happened and so be it. No, he longs to be with them again. He grieves. You see, the language that Paul uses here isn't job language. Isn't, oh, I did the task. I met the people, it's all done. No, this is the drop the kids off at kindergarten language. It's the drop the kids off at camp for the first time language. It's, are they okay? Are they going to be fine? Um, It is concern over these people that he has ministered to. He has a deep love for them. And he sends Timothy To hear what's going on there. And then Timothy brings back news about what is happening. And this is a letter that goes back to the church in Thessalonica after Paul has heard the good news from Timothy of how this church is doing. See, Paul, in his separation of just maybe being with these people three weeks or a few months, is wondering are they going to be okay? They've been persecuted, they've been socially ostracized at times, and he is wondering, will they be fine? And this is what news he gets back, that they are thriving, that they are doing well, and because he hears this, he gives thanks to God. He praises God for what has happened. This is probably the longest thanksgiving that Paul ever gives in all of his letters is this one in the letter to the Thessalonians. And you see his praise to these to God for these people and what is who he has is a full orbed view of who God is. What does he say in verse 3? Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope In our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a little apologetic side note. Many people argue that Trinitarian thinking or a high Christology, that Christ was God, was something that happened maybe a hundred years later after Christ. Here we have a letter that maybe had been written 15 years after the resurrection. That already the church has a high view of Christ, that he is equal with God in a Trinitarian view of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, the church believed this was God, Christ, that rose from the dead. And Paul is acknowledging that, that belief that is true in the church from the very beginning of the church, not something that was created over time. And in his thanksgiving, in his thankfulness, Paul gives the trifecta of Christian virtues. We see it in First Corinthians, but here first in First Thessalonians. Faith, hope, and love. Let's look again to it. It says, I, we thank God for the works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is amazed about. That these people have never seen Christ in the flesh. But they still believe in faith. That he is the Lord. While they live in the Roman Empire and maybe Caesar has come to Thessalonica himself. They say no, there is a different Lord in God than Caesar. It is Christ. So he's amazed at their faith. Next, he's amazed of their labor of love. You have to realize that this time, a lot of the citizens that lived in Thessalonica lived in the patronage system, meaning if they just followed a certain wealthy individual in Thessalonica, they would receive living wages from these people. If they praised these high Roman citizens, that they would be able to receive a living. That's all they had to do. And Paul is saying, no, you labor apart from this patronage system. You work. You have removed yourself from the Roman cult. And lastly, he sees that they have hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here are people that have been persecuted, that have lost major esteem in their culture, but they still have hope. This is what makes it the most breathtaking for Paul and Timothy and Silas. That they're not even there and this is happening. (laughs) They're not even present And these amazing things are happening in this community. I call this letter, Putting Church Planters in Their Place letter. That's what this letter is. It puts church planters in their place. To know this, that even with all their great preaching, all their great work, all their great strategies, God still Works. You know, maybe Josh has noticed this. I, I've started to notice over the past couple of years at Emmaus Road where, you know, you're wearing so many different hats as a church planner that one day you just look at what's happening and you realize it's not your work, but it's God working in the people of what's happening. Conversations conversions. People coming to know the Lord. This is God's work. That you can show up and worship happens. This is very amazing in in church planning for one reason. You know, here, there's no virtual reality. There's no major light show here. Isn't some crazy amazing coffee that just was served during the snack break. I love the gluten-free pretzels. I thought they were amazing. That's great. I love that. But it's nothing extraordinary. And for some people they say, well, what's the big deal? What the big deal is is that Christ is present. (laughs) That he's real. That he's working. That is what makes it amazing this is work produced by faith labor prompted by love endurance inspired by hope it can't be explained by sociology or political realities or great promoters no what paul is saying is i'm thanking god because this is happening through the work of his spirit that is what is happening I didn't go to a Christian college. Dominic Crossan, who is a great skeptic against Christianity, was the New Testament uh, kind of de jour for the professors. Crossan argues this. He says, You know, the reason that Christianity did so well is because it had great propagators, they were great at propaganda, the apostles and the disciples. I do want to say to Crossan through this, Paul wasn't even there to propagize. He wasn't even there to um, share the message with these people. He wasn't even there, and it still flourished. It flourished because it was a work of God working in this city and in these people. I wonder... Do you hold on to that? That you don't have to have some crazy light show. You don't have to have some crazy performance. That the work that needs to be done in this city is a work of God, it's by His power. Just talking to Zach, this is a city that has its issues, people that have their problems. Layers upon layers of issues and family dynamics. Do you think an amazing light show is going to change things for them? (laughs) Do you think an amazing gluten-free hors d'oeuvres is going to make things change? No, this is a work of God in people's hearts that will be able to change the layers of sin and issues that are in people's lives. And you get to be a part of it. You're going to be on the ground floor of something like that. That is exciting. Be encouraged. This is Paul writing to Oshkosh. He's writing to you. I'm not there, but God is, and he's working. Still, you have to wonder... Is it going to last, this church? It's in such a fragile state. Is this just a fad? Is this genuine, what is happening? Look with me in verse 4. It says this. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You see, Paul is using Old Testament language. Constantly through the Old Testament, it talks about Israel being chosen, being called out, and God's love for them. Why was Israel chosen? Why were they called out? Because they were numerous? No. Because they had an amazing piece of land? No, not really. If you've ever been to Israel, you realize, no. (laughs) No. Is because they had great armories and chariots and swords. No. Israel was called out because God loved them. Why were these people called out? These Christians that have converted in Thessalonica because they had great faith, great hope. Great love? No, they were called out because they were loved by God. What does 1 John say? We love because he first loved us. Listen, I I know I can get into trouble, right? Because I'm bringing up election, right? And there's so much division talking about the doctrine of election. I don't think that's what Paul's trying to do here, to go in some, you know, predestination lecture. He's saying that you're called out and chosen as comfort. It's assurance to them. That it's nothing that they had done, but what God had done. That in the midst of this suffering in this persecution and all that they're facing to know that what encourages them is not that they are thriving as a church and being huge numbers. No, it's because what God had done for them that he had chosen them. The Roman Empire was so much greater with more educated people, more established people. But these people have their hope not in that empire but their assurance comes from God. You got to wonder, how do I know that I am chosen? How do I know that I am called? Look with me again, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, we know that we're called when we know something happens in us. I think I want to go back to that new ceiling feeling. That, is it going to be okay? Am I going to make it? You see, it's in that moment that the ground starts to shake. That we go, okay, I'm not going to simply hear this word, but I'm going to believe it. I'm going to live life on a different plane. See, that new ceiling moment, that moment of trepidation, can be a moment of conviction. A moment of Jesus breaking in to our lives. It's not simply a message. But it's the power of the gospel to break everything and bring conviction. I got a picture of this this week. It was is a few months ago. I was with a gathering of elders and deacons. It's kind of what Presbyterians do at times. And I sat at a table with two guys from Milwaukee. One guy was just tatted up. And the other guy was clean cut. And I guess they belong, they belong to the same church. They're both deacons at their church, and just hearing their story. One was a lawyer from Virginia. He had moved back to Milwaukee, and he talked about how he had that new ceiling moment. Going, to church, going back to church after going for a long time, he just felt he was a legalist. He had everything in his life in control. And he said, you know what? God started to convict me. That my life was not put together by being a lawyer or being established or being great, but as being established by Him. He rocked me to my core, so I changed. And then this was his friend that he was eating with. And his his friend said this. He's a machinist. And uh, he was uh, he was into drugs and all these kind of things. And one day, uh, a guy that dropped off drugs at his apartment dropped off a Bible at the same time, which is ironic. It's another story. But he started reading the Bible. This tatted-up guy, this guy that said he used to worship the devil. And he started reading the Bible, and he felt the power of the gospel convicting him. And what I found the most intriguing thing about these stories, is they're two great stories. It's great about conversion stories and all the things. But what I found the most compelling is that these two guys were right next to each other, calling each other brothers, serving together as deacons. That showed the power of the gospel working. And it was just mind-boggling for me. That their assurance didn't come in their knowledge, their bad backgrounds, their good background. It came from a calling from God with power and conviction. You know, these two guys might look fragile in the world's economy. But the truth is, what I saw on that Saturday morning is two men stable in God's economy. See, that is what Paul is saying. This church is not fragile. This church is not a church that is just, has, is like a small group of people within the Roman Empire. No, this is a church that has been called out by God. That has been chosen by them. And that is an economy that will last eternity. Well, Paul goes on and talks in this passage. He talks about the overflow of the gospel from this church, that the word started spreading. And he started hearing in southern Greece what was going on in this church. That other people were talking about the gospel working in this church in Thessalonica. That they had joy in the midst of affliction. That these people had turned from idols. That they had hope in what was to come. And this is just an amazing power that is happening in this community. And Paul uses words like conviction and power... And conversion language. But I think this has moved past just conversion language. Past just a personal relationship with Jesus. It's more than just if you know your Bibles or the message. No, we're seeing these people live it out. They are filled with joy. They turn from idols. And they look to the hope to come. You know, John Calvin talks about our hearts are idle factories. That in our comfortableness, we create things that bring us ultimate hope. Continue to create things in us. And Paul is saying these people have turned from those things to bring them hope. Like the Roman Empire or Caesar. Instead, what they are saying that brings them hope is Christ's return. That is what hope they have. I do want to ask you a question as this young church. Is there something, if you didn't get it, you would lose hope? If there is something that you didn't get, you would lose hope. Josh, like, this place would be totally full. If it's not totally full in one year, you would lose hope. If you guys say, you know, if, my kids don't make it into this program or that school, I would lose hope. If I don't get this raise or if I don't get this mortgage or if I don't get this house, I would lose hope. I do wonder if those things didn't happen. Would you say, I don't know if this life is worth it? And here these people say, we have turned from all those things. We have turned from something that will give us hope that is everlasting. This church was persecuted. It was fragile. It was little. But they had joy. They had assurance. They had much. Because they identified themselves with the person that gave ultimate hope. Something that would never fade. Or never perish. Christ. I was a nine-year-old kid. And I was scared. Scared of being in a new place. Looking at a ceiling that was not the ceiling of my house. And I remember the counselors, I think it was like the fourth or fifth night, they would take each of the kids out to talk about Jesus or Christ or whatever, and I, I went, and they asked just us to lay on the ground and look up at the sky. And it was in the Ozarks in Missouri, so the stars were just amazing. They were overwhelming. And in that, they said, if God created all of this... And made all of these stars. That is the creator of the universe. What do you think? That he loves you and cares for you. That took an insecure nine-year-old kid and just rocked me to my core. To know that I was loved by God that created all these things. I wonder, maybe we need to look at a different ceiling. (laughs) Maybe we need to look at a different hope. Maybe if we get that right perspective, maybe if we look to him, that in the midst of fragility, (laughs) in the midst of a small church, in the midst of what might seem, something that you might be scared or fearful of, that there is hope. That there is perseverance. That there is a way forward. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, maybe Thessalonica is not far from Oshkosh in this church. Maybe this letter is as much needed for them as it is for us. Maybe we need to see the encouragement that you gave them is the same encouragement that you are giving us. And God, I pray that this body would look in faith and hope and love and know they have been called and chosen by you. And through that, they would reach this city with the gospel. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.